This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Our English word core comes from the Latin word for heart. We use it to refer to that which is most central. The Christian faith has a core, essentials without which one does not have a Christian faith. But what are those irreducible Christian convictions? Mike Horton is J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a new book on this very question, Core Christianity. This title, with other faculty titles, is available through... The bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. It has been a strong temptation in the modern and late modern worlds to dismiss doctrine in favor of other things, such as personal experience. So what do you mean when you say Christian doctrine, and why is Christian doctrine so important? Well, experience is important too, but you have to experience something. And the degree to which your doctrine is vague is the degree to which your experience will be vague and shallow. So we mustn't set doctrine at loggerheads with experience. It's the doctrines that give us certain experiences. You think of the Apostle Paul after climbing the Alpine summit of the great doctrines of grace. says, what shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the rest of it is like a hymn. Or after going through the doctrine of election, he says, who has ever given anything to God that he should repay him for from him and to him and through him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, it's like a mountain climber ascending this beautiful summit and then looking down upon the vista that he's climbed and just being enraptured by the view. That is Christian experience. We read the Bible in church rather than the Bhagavad Gita because our experience is Bible-shaped, not Veda-shaped. So when somebody tells me, you know, I think that doctrine gets in the way, I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, not get into all this doctrine, I ask them to unpack that sentence. I want to have a personal relationship. Well, first of all, you're assuming the person you're having a relationship with is personal. And that's a doctrine, by the way. That's a doctrine. It's not Buddhism, where there is no God, nor is it the idea of fate and impersonal force. You believe you can have a personal relationship with this God. And then furthermore, Jesus Christ, who's Jesus Christ? You just used a name and a title, Jesus and Christ. And furthermore, how do you know you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? In other words, what they're saying is, I have a theology, I'm just assuming it, and I've never really checked it out to see whether it's good or bad. I'm just going with experience. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did not do. I just As you were talking, I was looking at 2 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, where Paul says in part, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That's a personal relationship, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then in verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the so the pattern of sound words is like a creed. It is. Yeah. And it's in connection with a personal relationship with Jesus, and it's in connection with love and faith. And so everything that people say that they're concerned about, here Paul connects to, as you say, basically a creedal formula, a pattern. What's a pattern of sound words? It's the idea of orthodoxy. You know, a trellis can't make 
a vine grow, but it sure can make it grow in the right direction. Orthodoxy doesn't compensate for the lack of a personal relationship and experience. We experience Christ as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, we don't grow like a forest fire, we grow like a tree. And we don't grow in any and every direction, which many Christians are doing today without that trellis. Oh, I just want to follow my experience. Well, you know, you can follow your experience to hell, because there are a lot of things that seem right. There are a lot of things that make sense, and the gospel doesn't really make that much sense apart from conversion. The gospel offends our moral sensibilities. There are lots of things that, you know, we find, even as Christians, we, when we read it in the Bible, we say that can't possibly be. We're standing there with Jesus' hearers in John 6, being offended by his words, eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't, you don't have any life in you. You can't even come to me unless the Father draws you. That's kind of not stuff I would wake up in the morning thinking about and believing. It has to be preached into me. It has to be revealed. Well, that is revealed doctrine. And apart from that doctrine, we will follow our own instincts like animals off a cliff. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Mike Horton about his new book, Core Christianity. In it, Mike, you talk about a firewall between faith and reason. What do you mean by this firewall, and why does it need to come down? You and I encounter it all the time. I was just at a conference where I was on a panel, and you had these academics who were making this claim that I've heard over and over again, that basically faith is in the realm of a leap. It's totally subjective. And then you have knowledge, which is based on empirical data, observation, historical report, and so forth. You know, I had this conversation years ago with Bill Nye, the science guy. We were on a panel together, and, and he made the same argument that religion is in this realm of private devotion. If you want to, it's fine, but it's not a public claim. It's what Immanuel Kant distinguished between the phenomenal and the noumenal. That's right. That's right. Or pietists talk about, you know, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. So it's not that, you know, Richard Dawkins and the new atheists have created this sharp distinction or this firewall between faith and reason. In many cases, it's been well-meaning Christians who have divided off their ordinary way of thinking from the way they think about the faith. And, you know, the thing that really tears that firewall down is 1 Corinthians 15, among other passages, where Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. He doesn't say, haven't you had your best life now? Haven't you been a better you? And he doesn't say that it doesn't matter if Jesus hasn't actually been raised as long as he's been raised in your heart. Right. He says... If Jesus hasn't been raised in actual, in Palestine, objective, <laughs> right. historical reality, yes, then the whole thing, Christianity, is a complete failure. Absolutely. So what that means is that the Christian claim itself, whether you think that the claim is Fruit Loops or serious, whether you think that the claim can be defended well or falls apart, the claim itself is just as reasonable and just as much in the realm of history, other historical claims, like, you know, Alexander conquered most of Asia, it's in that class of the claim. Now you have to evaluate it. You have to look at the claim. But the important point is that from the very beginning, Christians knew that when they made this claim, Jesus is risen, and he's the Savior and Lord, and he's returning again to judge the living and the dead. When they made that claim, they were making a public claim. 
Paul tells Felix, you yourself know, O honorable Felix, what has happened in the precincts of Jerusalem. These events were not done in a corner. It's all public. It's very unlike the Mormon who has a burning in his bosom that Mormonism is true. We don't tell people, well, just pray for a burning in the bosom that will compensate for bad history. We tell them the history. And that is a completely different kind of claim than most religions make. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. If you talk to a Mormon and you say, look, Joseph Smith was this, he was this, he was this, he was this, and I've had this conversation, the Mormon will come back to you and say, but I've had this experience in my heart. Mm -hmm. And so that really shows the futility, ultimately, of making the subjective prior, making it first, making it foundational. If the faith isn't grounded in objective historical reality, then there is no faith. Yeah, look, a lot of Christians get hot under the collar when skeptics come to them and say, well, I'm glad that works for you. Say, no, it's true for everybody. (laughs) And then they'll turn around and say, well, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. (laughs) Well, they just sang that last Sunday, or a more contemporary equivalent of it. Exactly. And I don't know your heart. I don't know what you've experienced. I'll tell you, if you tell me that your personal testimony about how Jesus has changed your life, which may be wonderful, if you tell me that the experience that you have in your heart is the basis for why I should become a Christian, I'll tell you what I'll say. I'll say, I have no access to your heart or to your experience. It may well be true, but there is nothing in what you've said that compels me to have the same experience. Which is why they end up saying, well, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad that gets you through the night. That's the right thing to say to something like that. You structure the book around four Ds. What are those Ds? Well, the first is the drama. Everything we believe and practice and follow in Scripture arises first and foremost out of a divine drama. It's like a play in various parts. It unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, and it is a plot with many subplots, but all of the subplots running like rivulets into the great river of the drama itself. And then there is the doctrine. We know that Jesus was crucified, and on the third day he was raised. That's the drama, and that really is the gospel. That's the drama from Genesis to Revelation. He was crucified, and on the third day he was raised. But then the doctrine tells me what it means for me. It's funny, a lot of people think doctrine is irrelevant. It doesn't really tell me what the Bible has to say to me personally. It's the opposite. I could say, well, it's a ripping good yarn that God became flesh and died on the cross and was raised on the third day. That's, that's interesting. But the doctrine tells me he was crucified for our sins. There's the doctrine of sin. And was raised for our justification. There's the doctrine of justification and salvation, all the benefits we have in Christ. And so the doctrine actually applies it to me. I am included in that drama as a recipient of God's grace. And then the doxology, I mean, what shall we say in response to these things, Paul asks in Romans 8. In response to what things? Well, all the drama and doctrine that he's been unpacking. And so there is a place for a personal appropriation and an appropriate reaction to an emotional even response to what God has done and what God has said. That's right. So we're not isolating these two things and saying, well, it really doesn't matter what you experience. It only matters what actually objectively happened. You're just setting priorities. That's right. The surefire way of getting me to not have an experience is to tell me to have an experience. But if you 
proclaim the goodness of God in his saving work in Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, I guarantee I'll have an experience. Now you have something to celebrate. Right. I mean, what does doxology mean, literally? Praise. You know, giving praise, thanksgiving to God. But you've got to have something to praise him for. Many of us have been in services, well-meaning services with brothers and sisters who sing pieces of a psalm over and over again. You know, we love you, we serve you, we... And then you go back to these psalms and you realize that the psalmist has told the whole history of redemption or a piece of that history of redemption. Here's what God has done. Therefore, I will praise him. Therefore, I will serve him. In scripture, doxology is grounded in God-saving acts for us. That's right. And that's why Paul typically, when he transitions, can't be formulaic about it, but it's pretty frequently that he does this, retransitions from the doctrine to the doxology, you find a therefore. You know, therefore, in view of God's mercies, and that leads us to the last D, discipleship. In view of God's mercies, okay, we've gone through the drama, the doctrine. I'm thinking of Romans especially as a summary of this, but the doxology, where he's just standing on the mountaintop looking at the vista, praising God, lost in worship. Therefore, Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, let us present our bodies as living sacrifices, no longer being shaped into the pattern of this world's way of thinking, not just feeling, but thinking, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds through the Word of God. So it really does have to start with the renewing of the way we think about things, and then our hearts change. Our hearts have something to respond to, and then what do we want to do? We ask, what now can my hands do? Where can my feet run? Instead of running to sin, I want to run away from sin. Instead of my hands doing violence, I want to love and serve my neighbor. Instead of yielding my heart and my mind to the world and its corrupt way of thinking, I want to pour into the scriptures and saturate myself with the scriptures. I want to go out and do good deeds to witness to this faith and to also simply care for those who need me. That is something that can't just happen with a campaign for social justice or a campaign for public morality or, you know, a moral majority deal. This is something that arises out of a specific story that gives rise to specific doctrines or teachings that tell me what it means for me and for us, and then yields a completely different emotional response to life in this world that then produces a doxology-driven way of discipleship. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
Recently, on a trip to Argentina, the President of the United States said that the debate over or between capitalism and communism is an interesting intellectual exercise that the people of Argentina should conduct and then they should do whatever works for them. That was a striking thing to say on a number of levels, but it seemed to me it sort of captures a certain zeitgeist, a spirit of the age, a kind of pragmatism to focus on doing things and finding what works rather than what's true and rather than holding on to doctrine. You're suggesting, however, that in fact, the person and work of Jesus really disrupts that pragmatism. It really does. I mean, I just read this past week a church leader saying that, you know, we have to do whatever works in church. And basically, preaching the cross doesn't work. It doesn't actually promote church growth. And I was stunned. Maybe you're trying to do the wrong things. <laughs> well, well, and the thing is, of course, what are you growing? A tumor or, you know, a healthy body? That's the thing. Tumors grow quickly. Yeah, not everything that grows quickly is necessarily healthy. I mean, Islam yeah. is perhaps, some people say, the fastest growing yeah. religious movement in the world. And yet, arguably, from a Christian point of view anyway, that's not necessarily a good thing. Exactly. I think that pragmatism is deep in us, especially as Americans. And you hear it on the right and on the left. You hear it in the church, outside the church. Well, let's tone that down. That's not going to be appealing you know, the thing is, the law and the gospel are just absolutely, the way the Bible unpacks the story, so striking, so surprising, so shocking, that the very fact that it's counterintuitive, the very fact that it is not something that we would ordinarily believe, stops us in our tracks to listen to it. Dorothy Sayers once said, you know, let's at least have a gospel that's worth rejecting. You know, non-Christians know when they hear a sales pitch, they know when somebody's telling them what they just heard from Oprah versus when they've heard something that really offends them. It really ticks them off, but they say, you know, at least there's a there there. They're saying something and it has a certain ring of truth about it, even if my will and my heart oppose it. Here's the thing. The more Christianity tries to be on good terms with the world. The less Christian it becomes, the more it becomes absorbed into the bloodstream of this fading evil age. We saw it with mainline liberal Protestantism. Why would evangelicals want to repeat that mistake? Christianity is on its game. Christianity sees its brightest days, even under martyrdom, when it is saying, I am confident that what God has revealed is the anchor, not only for my soul, but for the salvation of human beings. We're talking to Mike Horton about his new book, Core Christianity, and at the center of Core Christianity is the incarnation of God the Son who entered into history. And Jesus could not possibly be described as a pragmatist, right? <laughs> yeah. From an earthly point of view, the entire episode was a complete failure. You know, just at the point where he had his largest crowds and adulation and he was potentially able to start a successful movement, he turned his back on all of it and he ends up on a cross being mocked and laughed at and a few mm -hmm. stragglers at his feet between two thieves, one of whom is reviling him. Exactly. That's why the Apostle Paul said that the rulers of this age had no idea what God was doing when in his apparent weakness he was triumphing most powerfully in history at the cross. It's so true, and you think of, there's so many examples we could think of, but John 6, 
Dr. Godfrey calls this Jesus church shrinkage seminar. <laughs> um, this is where Jesus, you know, has fed the 5,000 and that was lunch and now it's dinner time. So they get in all the speedboats they can find to get across the other side and catch up with Jesus. And it's clear Jesus is not all that thrilled with the company. And so here he has this camp meeting out there on the banks of the lake. And uh, he starts preaching, you are dead in your sins. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You cannot even come to me unless the Father draws you. You know, these are not flattering doctrines. And what happens? Well, they walk away. The crowds just sort of dissipate. And then Jesus turns to the 12, and Peter says, Jesus, this is a hard teaching, and who can listen to it? And Jesus says, well, does this offend you? What if you saw the Son of Man go back to where he was before? In other words, what if, what if I hiked back up there, and you're left to save yourselves? You know, the only thing worse than you being unable to save yourselves is to not have a Savior. How about that? You want to go too? Or can you drink this cup? Yeah. That I'm about to drink? That's right. And what is their response? To whom can we go? For you are the Holy One sent of God, and you have the words of eternal life. You know, that day, Jesus made 11, of course, Judas was there too, made 11 disciples who would turn the world upside down. Everyone else was gone. Whose message was that a certain rabbi from Nazareth was crucified, that he was buried, that he was really dead, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. That's right. And not only that, that a certain number of days later, he was ascended, and we saw him go, and now he's quite unpredictably, in a sense, reigning over everything that is, and that he is God the Son, incarnate, true man, true God, and the second member of the Trinity, and he's returning again, and he's going to establish a glorious new heavens and new earth. Never could have seen that on that other side of the Emmaus Road. Jesus catching up after his resurrection with the two dejected disciples. He says, why are you so downcast? And they say, well, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about what has just transpired? Explained the crucifixion of Jesus and uh, said, and we thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. And then Jesus, starting with Moses and all the prophets, explained himself from all the scriptures. In other words, that he was the point of that whole unfolding drama. And their hearts burned within him as he opened up the scriptures. Then he allowed them to recognize him as he broke the bread and gave them the wine. So it's really crucial that we understand that even for the disciples, Jesus' ministry ended in failure. It was only after the resurrection and after several appearances that they really came to believe. And then the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and Peter, who denied Jesus three times to a little girl, was now preaching the gospel boldly on the steps of the temple with the temple police looking down on him. And saying that we have to obey God rather than men. Exactly. Having heard from the lips of Jesus himself what his future would be, that he knew that he would die for the sake of Christ. Yep, it's just remarkable. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There are so many things that we could touch on, and time is getting away from us. Two more things. How are covenants, the biblical covenants, at the center of Christianity? Because the title of your book is Core Christianity, and it's available now, published by Zondervan, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, and in good booksellers everywhere. In this book, I'm trying to really focus on the core beliefs of all Christians. I kept asking myself, what am I saying here that all Christians believe? 
of course, I'm a Reformed Christian, and there are going to be ways of saying this that are clearly expressing my Reformed convictions. But what do we as all Christians believe? What are the core beliefs of all Christians? So in touching on the covenants, I don't go into differences even within Reformed circles on the covenants, but it is important if you're going to work with the Bible at all to see that there are different covenants in the Bible that have a structural role in the biblical text. They're not necessarily central in the way that Jesus is central, but they are structural in the way that an architectural framework is integral to a building. So you don't always see these covenants explicitly, but they're there holding everything up. And so the old covenant, you might say, is one building, and it's its own building. The new covenant is another building. It is a distinct building with its own structure. And yet, they're connected by this covenant of grace that runs really all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the announcement of the gospel to Adam and Eve after the fall, especially in the calling of Abraham and the new covenant that is promised in Jeremiah all the way into its fulfillment in the New Testament. So understanding that really helps us to interpret the Bible to see both the continuities and discontinuities as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the last thing that I want to touch on is something that we've already hit on, but I want to go at it one more time just so the listener sees how important it is to you and to what you're saying in core Christianity. And that is that of the four Ds, the last is discipleship, and that all of this doctrine— and the drama that you were just sort of surveying for us, all of that in the doxology, it all flows into a new life in Christ, a life of discipleship. Right. I think, Scott, one of the reasons people think that doctrine is boring is because it is in the way that it's often taught. Doctrine by itself, kind of unhooked, unhinged from the drama, is like a skeleton without skin and bones and blood circulating, pulsing through its veins. Doctrine unhinged from doxology is kind of the grim ascent to these facts and pass this theological exam and you'll be fine. You have to see that doctrine is always looking back, grounded in the drama, and always looking forward to thanksgiving and discipleship, our life in the world. And once we, I think, make these connections and see doctrine as integral to all of that, we begin to realize this is what we were made for. This is the engine. Doctrine is the engine of our worship and of our lives, our following Christ. You know, there are a lot of people, maybe some listeners who say, I hear all the time, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, pray more, read your Bible more, do more, pray more, evangelize more, do more good deeds to your neighbor, so forth. Again, it's like just being told to praise without any reason to praise. And this isn't the way the apostles give their imperatives. I've mentioned before, Paul saying, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the connection that we should be looking for. If you don't have any vista to view, the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, if you don't have that, then the next part, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, will be firmly planted in midair. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.